0: podcast
1: with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Apologies if my voice is a little bit scratchy today, but it's a little bit hoarse. I just got back from an extremely short and pretty extreme, travel-wise anyway, pretty extreme trip to the United States. I played at Infrasonic Equinox Festival in Minnesota. So I flew direct from London, I say direct, I didn't fly direct at all, I flew by Chicago <laughs> to Minneapolis on Thursday, played the show on Friday, went directly to the airport, 5am flight on Saturday and arrived back in London on Saturday night around midnight and it's now Sunday morning when I'm recording this because I have tons to do before the podcast goes out on Tuesday morning. So yeah, don't say I don't work for this. Don't say I don't work for you, <laughs> podcast listener. Okay, so one quick PSA before we get started. We're going to be at ADE next week. We're going to be doing a live podcast from the ADE conference, like actually as part of the conference. So if you're going to the ADE thing, if you're going to have a pass, then you can get into that, although it is first come, first serve, and it's quite a little small room. So it's going to be a live not a diving Podcast episode with me, obviously, but also special guest Ellen Alien. So I'm going to be talking to Ellen about lots of different stuff, including the development of the Berlin club scene, B-Pitch Control, her label, and yeah, it's just going to be a yeah, pretty regular episode, but in front, of, uh, in front of a live audience in order to make me extremely nervous because I've never really spoken in front of an audience before. So yeah, if you want to come along and see me be terrified... Then um yeah, please do drop us a message either on my Twitter, Scuba Official, or on the Discord or whatever, for more details if you're gonna be at ADE. So yeah, that's that. Right, this week on the show we have a dubstep wars episode, but it's kind of a dub war episode because we have none other than Dave Q, who was the promoter of the first ever dubstep night in North America. That was dub war in New York City and yeah it was an amazing night I got to play there a couple of times finished in 2010 and really the story of dub war is the story of quote-unquote original dubstep in North America because Dave really ran it as a labor of love and it was just completely related to his relationship with the music and when that changed the night ended basically so what we're going to get is a kind of it's a flip side or another side of the story or one of the stories that we told on the Joe Nice episode, because Joe Nice was the main resident of Dub War, and we talked about it a lot in that episode. So we're just getting another side really of that story. But yeah, Dave was an incredibly important person in the development of Dubstep. In North America, he was also referenced by Nicole Cacciavillano as one of the important people. So she she referenced Dave Drew from Smog in Los Angeles, Suraj from Houston, Miro from the Surefire Agency, and herself as the kind of key sort of like network of promoters, and obviously Miro as a booking agent. But you know, the people that made it happen, that built the infrastructure from the ground up for that sound in North America. So, yeah, it's great to have Dave on. I hadn't talked to him for a little while and uh, it was great to catch up with him just generally. But I mean, just amazing to be able to dig into his story, which is such an important one in bass music in North America. And actually, in the context of the show that I played this weekend, which was Infrasonic Equinox is basically a bass music festival, really. And the set that I played was, um, all the sets, I played two sets. The sets that I played were very, very bass music oriented. That stuff just wouldn't exist if it wasn't for people like Dave. So yeah, this is important stuff, really. So just before we get into it, clearly you're not a patron if you're listening to this feed. So if you want to support the show, then you can do via Patreon. Patreon.com slash Scuba Official. And if you don't want to do that, That's also cool. Just leave us a review or a rating. Hit the five-star button wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link to that in the show notes. It contains all the episodes plus loads of the music that we talk about. So plenty of dubstep in there. Classic dubstep in this week's update. And finally, join us in the Discord. There's a Hot Flush Discord server, hotflushrecordings.com Discord, but it also contains Not A Diving Podcast channel and general chat about the podcast and various other things. So, um, yeah, we've got a growing community in there and we'd love to have you along too. So, like I said, hotflushrecordings.com Discord. So, yeah, okay, that's about enough of me. Without further delay, here is Dave Q. Dave Q, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? Thank you, Paul. I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. So, um, right, I was trying to figure out how how we're going to kind of structure this discussion. Because, I mean, obviously, Your Night Dub War, which was the first dub set night in America, I believe, is going to be a, f- a big feature of this. But I want to I wanna cover lots of other stuff too. So I figured I um, some... I figured we'd just go chronologically, actually. I figured that might be just the best way of doing it. So where are you from originally? Where did you grow up?
0: Um, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, which is kind of like halfway between Boston and New York. Um, I was born in Boston. My family's all from Boston, but uh, we moved to Connecticut when I was young for my dad's job and I grew up in New Haven about an hour and a half outside New York City.
1: Okay and then like, was was music a, like a big part of your life when you were a kid?
0: Yeah it kind of was like I didn't grow up in a family of musicians or anything but I grew up in a family that had a lot of music around. <laughs> in fact I had boxes full of 45s in the basement growing up and one of those like little Fisher Price record players and I would spend hours and hours just Slipping through like 45s from the 1950s and 1960s. And so, yeah, it was always there and it was always kind of a music family in that sense that we listened to a lot of music, but, you know, never as a sort of musician or anything
1: like that. But did you, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly sure I've read that you played in bands though, as well. So was there a, (laughs) tell tell me about that.
0: From very, very early on, I, I started originally playing the trumpet I used to play like in jazz bands. And in high school, I got into playing the bass guitar. And, you know, by that point in my life, I was starting to get into more kind of experimental and weird music. So I was playing sort of space rock kind of experimental, like indie rock type stuff, uh, playing bass for quite a few years straight through into college. Um, I moved to Philadelphia for for university and there continued even going kind of deeper down the, the rabbit hole of like weird music which is where the uh, my first exposure to electronic music came in, uh, originally through Aphex Twin, back in
1: 1994. Right, okay. okay so, where, so which years were you at college? Um, I moved to Philly for college in
0: 94. So I was there from 94 to 98. God. And, you know, Philly was one of the places, like, early on, like, the rave scene. I think Philly, Baltimore, and New York were kind of like some of the early places where there was, like, a really strong rave scene. So there were people around philly and around the university you know who were already kind of into techno and the very beginnings of like jungle and hardcore and stuff and so and also there were reps for some of the labels who would show up on campus like <laughs> like with demo cd's really? you know wow. with like promo cd's for the one i remember getting that kind of like really sent my whole sort of music world in, down this this path was this thing called selected or not selected ambient works it was called like ambient something and it was like half of Aphex twins i like, care because you do and half of the black dogs uh scanners album like together on one cd right okay. <laughs> so from wow. there i just became obsessed i was actually like i was studying english at the university university of pennsylvania and we had to read william gibson's neuromancer that uh freshman <laughs> year and i just remembered like having Aphex twin on in the background while i was reading neuromancer that's for, a like, good that soundtrack, <laughs>
1: So hang, hang on, let me let me just ask you to clarify about the, the label reps like showing up on campus. Do you mean so they were they were promoting their acts? Is that have I got that the right way around?
0: Basically, yeah. Um, one of the labels I remember being around was called Astral Works, which I think was a US only oh, yeah, label, yeah, yeah. but I think they were affiliated with a different label, you know, in Britain. And so they would come over with like a lot of the, you know of But they at the time called IDM, Intelligent Dance Music, you know, in full length, like album format, and they would show up at at parties around campus and around Philly, and you know, basically try and turn college kids onto this next big thing, you know, that electronic music. That's
1: mind blowing to me. I have to say, I've never, I've never heard of that happening before. But I mean, it makes total sense, right? I mean, it, oh, yeah, this this must be a this must have been a fairly common label trick when label marketing budgets were. <laughs> you know, significant, I guess.
0: Totally. And I also, I don't remember if it was connected to this, but I also was a DJ on the university's radio station. So I probably had access to a lot of promos that way as well. Um, but it was it was interesting because the show was really a mix of a lot of hip hop um, and, you know, more and more eventually electronic music and jungle And and dub reggae, so a lot of the things that kind of became became the template for me that that eventually really fed into what dub war was about. Like, were the same kinds of sounds that I was playing together on my radio show.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting. I also played on my university radio, and like again, it's like it's it's it's, there's no equivalent to this now, right? Because yeah, you'd have like uh all the promos would get sent to the station right so you'd have a bunch of stuff there ready to play if you wanted it and then obviously you could bring your own music too i guess that's how it worked over where you were right
0: yeah totally but it was mostly at the time the radio station was still mostly vinyl so (laughs) like there were a lot of promos stuffed into like onto shelves that no one had ever looked at and no one knew what they were so in a weird way going to the radio station was like a, a bit of a crate digging experience
1: Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So going back a bit then, like, so you were, you were playing vinyl on, on the radio, I'm guessing from that. So when did you start buying records? Like, and what I mean, was there a kind of, um, like a record shop that was key for you when you first started?
0: Um, so yeah, I mean, in Philly, there were quite a lot of amazing record shops. Um, you know, some for kind of very dusty used vinyl, some that were more like hip hop specialist shops, but in terms of, like, really getting into dance music and electronic music, the store that I remember spending the most time in in Philly was called, um, I believe it was called 411 Records, and it was co-owned, or at least I believe Josh Wink had something to do with the shop, and maybe King Brit. There was a third guy, who oh, yeah. Nile, I can't remember his name now, but he was a bit of a Philly fixture as well in the in the Philly rave scene, and so... Yeah, the three of them had this great shop and um, I think, you know, King Brit was, I I mean, I don't know if he had a connection directly to Jungle exactly, but I think he had a lot to do with stocking a lot of Jungle and Drum and Bass in that shop very early on. So I had access to what was some pretty great like white label vinyl for, for a lot of early Jungle stuff there.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's great. I mean, 94, 95 is obviously like, that's a key era. I mean, some of those pitch narrows <laughs> coming into those tunes, right?
0: <laughs> the shop might have not come around until like 96. Um, I definitely remember hearing Jungle tapes, like tapes from the radio, like like pirate tapes and stuff uh, around 94, 95. I mean, original Nutta definitely stands out as like the first tune I could identify as Jungle, like a, what is this weird thing with all these weird snares and it's crazy fast and the sort of raga raga vocals and stuff but um yeah philly was an interesting town because in some ways it shared a little bit of the pirate radio sensibility to what was happening in london at the time like there were pirate radio stations in west philly and a lot of you know in a bit of a sort of anarchist ethos to the town that was always there so yeah it was a really cool place to get exposed to music
1: Okay, that's interesting about about pirates. I'd not really heard about that before. So, like like were they uh, were they connected to the rave scene in any way? Like, what kind of stuff was getting played on Pirate in, in Philly?
0: There, there were some DJs. Um, like, I mean, you would hear jungle on the radio on Pirate Radio in West Philly, but primarily the DJs were playing either uh, reggae or hip hop.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I guess Philly had a
0: Philly had a strong reggae scene, but even more so, it had an amazing hip hop scene in the in the mid '90s.
1: Because it was sort of,
0: you know, close to New York, but it sort of existed on a different planet in a lot of ways. <laughs> so, you know, the underground in Philly felt, in a weird way, very disconnected what, to what was happening, you know, on New York radio in the in the '90s.
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually know like very little. I mean, my my knowledge of of hip hop generally is is very broad strokes and. You know, I, I obviously know a bit about like the New York scene then, and that's the sort of stuff which kind of gets talked up of that era. But like, so to the to the layman like me, to the kind of idiot observer, like those individual like city scenes in hip hop in that era. Because actually, I mean, not, I mean, on a podcast the other week, I was talking about you know just the significance of that kind of mid nineties era in hip hop. So can you fill in some of the gaps then about the, the significance of like each like city's scene perhaps with like Philly as an example?
0: Well, I mean, in the case of, of, of Philly, you know, it really felt like there was a, a sort of small sort of network of people who all knew each other, who were, you know, kind of collaborating a lot, working together and working outside of the structure of the kind of, you know, major industry that was starting to develop in New York. Um, I mean, Questlove was definitely one of the central figures in what was happening in Philly, um, in the nineties in hip hop. And, you know, a lot of people know the roots obviously, but Quest was also producing a lot of other people. Um, and I, I honestly think King Britt was involved too, from a production perspective in a lot of what was happening in Philly at the time. Um, but you know, Questlove had his hands all over the, uh, the first Eric Badu release, um. I think he might have had something to do with Bahamadia. I'm not sure, but she was a really incredible MC from Philly in the 90s. You know, Questlove eventually was producing D'Angelo and quite a lot of other stuff. But so in Philly, there was this kind of soulful sound to the to the hip hop that was being made.
1: Right, got it. So and then so for you, presumably, what it sounds like is that hip hop was was much more of a sort of musical touchpoint than the rave scene that was going on at that time. Is that a fair characterization?
0: Um, I mean for me they were sort of equal in a way like I had at that point in my life I had already been like a big fan of hip-hop for a long time Um, So I arrived in Philly already super passionate about it and the nice thing is, you know The mid 90s is a time when you can see like all of your heroes play in fairly small venues So, so I definitely was like searching out and going to like any interesting hip-hop thing that I could in, in Philly in those years but The rave scene just felt like this completely alien sort of unknown territory, you know, that I was stepping into. And so it was a little intimidating in a way, but the music was just so futuristic and so cool. And the people, everyone was just so welcoming and so passionate about it. And it just, it just like didn't fit into my understanding of anything that had come before, like in my world, at least in terms of like the way music is, is made the way it's, it's, you know, it's played the way it's enjoyed by, by people in a room like it was just so different so that was really exciting and I that became bigger and bigger part of my kind of musical musical identity as my years in Philly went on I wasn't yet at the point where like a lot of the like really sort of devoted hardcore ravers like a lot of them would travel to Baltimore or DC or New York like every weekend pretty much to go to raves for me it was more like when there's something happening in Philly and someone I knew was going, I would kind of tag along.
1: Yeah, I was go I was just gonna ask, were there any like specific examples of that, that you could you could point to? For example, like were there key acts that you were into, like key DJs or whatever?
0: I mean Josh Wink Josh Wink was definitely the local hero at the time. And you know, the, and I loved the sort of mixture of sort of acid kind of sounds and break beats that, that he was about at the time. Um, In terms of local DJs, I mean, I don't remember a lot of the names, to be honest. It was also, like, underground at the time, and I wasn't even really thinking about it in terms of, like, the DJ as his hero. It was more like, go to this weird party that's really dark with crazy music and just, like, get lost.
1: (laughs) yeah I mean that's absolutely true I was just as you were saying that I was just thinking back to my first few experiences in those kind of environments and yeah the the DJ was almost an afterthought right it was just like it was just the environment that was so intoxicating about it exactly
0: I do remember when I was in Philly going to hear uh, a guy called Gerald spin and that was when I think he was like sort of in a transitional moment you know the sort of late 80s Manchester sort of sound and was already sort of in the rear window and I think he was actually starting to make Jungle at the time
1: yeah, well, we've had him on the show, actually, and he uh, describes that transition and his experimentations with with Jungle and how inspiring he found it. So, yeah, I mean, he's like, he's a, he's a proper legend, actually, I have to say. I think he's um, slightly underappreciated, probably, in some respects. But, um, okay, so in Philly until 98, studying, and, like, to what extent was djing like by the end of that period like to what extent was djing a thing for you like h- how important was it it's
0: interesting because the thought of djing like at a club in front of people was not even something that i really thought much about or pursued until dubstep began to, began to happen because and it really kind of just came out of this this recognition that like wow there's this amazing music I have like crates of records of it, and there's nowhere to hear it, and no one plays it. So it might as well be me. <laughs> but up until <laughs> up that point, really, like, you know, right up until the early 2000s, I was just like buying a lot of vinyl. I had turntables, but I was just playing it at home to enjoy it and maybe tinkering with mixing. Um, I lucked into a pair of techniques because um, a friend of mine in New York. had rich parents had given her turntables that she never used and she basically was like okay you can have them for like 300 (laughs) bucks but yeah up till that point really i was still just you know buying um you know jungle and hip-hop records and also i always bought a lot of like old soul and jazz and reggae records as well but it was really just more as a collector and to play at home but only when i sort of found myself discovering the you know It was like the Dubplate.net era and the um, Big Apple Records era and suddenly had access to all of these really interesting white labels of what eventually became Dubstep. Only then did I start thinking like, oh, wow, I should try and mix this and and play it for people because there's nowhere to hear it.
1: So, I mean, obviously Dubstep came out of Garage and you know, Dubplate.net was ostensibly a Garage site really when it started. So when we had Spoonie on the show last week, telling the story of uk garage which was which was great but i mean but as part of that we talked about the kind of split and you know how grime came into the music and how dubstep was a kind of like subgenre of that almost at the start so were you into garage i mean uk garage at all in the period before you started discovering dubstep
0: yeah so i mean i can actually identify my exact point of entry into the whole like spectrum of garage music <laughs> it must have been 2000 and I think it was drum and bass arena or like some forum that was mostly like talking about new drum and bass stuff and someone on there mentioned Wookie and you know I somehow ended up checking out that song Battle by Wookie and my mind was completely blown Um, I mean as someone you know who at that point was living in New York and I loved sort of New York hip hop and R&B radio like I love that here is this music that kind of tapped into a little of the sort of R&B sounds, but like the bass lines were very drum and bassy. The beats at 140 were like, or probably was a little slower than 140 at the time, but like it was a very refreshing tempo and I really enjoyed the really swung drums and all of that. So it just felt like a really interesting new hybrid and a sound that that for me, I didn't know I needed at the time, but I very quickly started searching out... um, whatever streams I could find from different London uh, pirate radio stations where they were playing mostly Garage. And it didn't take very long to discover that there was a sort of darker sound to this thing too, that wasn't just the more sort of uplifting R&B kind of influence that, you know, that I discovered with Wookie. So very quickly, I started discovering a lot of what you would call the sort of dark two-step kind of sound in that, you know, maybe 2000, 2001 period.
1: Right. Okay. So well, one
0: track I wanted to highlight also that I really remember hearing that kind of like in a way set the stage for me in terms of like, you know, what would eventually become dubstep. Like I really remember loving this tune called Destiny by Dem 2.
1: Well, that is an amazing track. That's an incredible tune. Absolutely. Oh, and then, and then speaking of the sort of, you know, the, the relationship
0: with grime at the time, I also remember So Solid. Um, you know, especially some of the just the instrumentals that I think that tune is called Dilemma. That's so solid tune with just like that droney uh-huh. bass line and like really sparse drums. And like I was in love with that. And and actually, So Solid came around to New York around that time. It was probably around two thousand and one, two thousand and two. And that was the first right. time I really got a taste of like the role of the MCs in this kind of developing kind of grime. and and the fact that there was like it was almost like Wu-Tang Clan there were like seven or eight of them (laughs) and the MC was really center stage and the DJ played more like a hip-hop DJ than a than a techno DJ you know so that that was really interesting to me
1: yeah I mean that was absolutely so solid so were they I mean was that a big show in New York because they at that point they really caught a lot of hype in the UK for sure it was huge so I mean how big was that
0: it was at a big club like a big midtown Manhattan club called Centrofly and but they were actually room two room one if I'm not mistaken might have been Goldie that night so you had drum and bass in the main room and and UK garage in the in the second room so the crowd for so solid was maybe a hundred people at the most
1: that's crazy and that was what 2000 2001 probably 2001 at, at the time
0: I met Simon Reynolds at that show, <laughs> and up to, up to that point, oh, you know, yeah, okay. I had loved his writing uh, about music, but I had never met him in person, and so, yeah, I just distinctly remember thinking like, oh, he's here, that's amazing, like, <laughs> that tells me, like, I'm doing the right thing.
1: <laughs> right, so you're in New York now, and we, you know, you said that you finished in Philly in 98, so did you move straight to New York from there? I did, yeah, I moved to New York in December of 98, and, and what, got a job and sort of uh, began your career as a normal person? Yeah, I got a
0: job uh, in the marketing department of an architecture firm. So I was working there for a couple of years and 9-11 happened, you know, not that long after. And, you know, I, and I saw it with my own eyes. So that was sort of a life-changing experience. But, you know, the mood of just dread of like the world falling apart and New York really falling apart in a lot of ways just was sort of an overwhelming (laughs) sensation for for years after that. So I think, you know, I think that that in a way also had an influence on just what eventually became dub war, you know, it just captured the essence of like the way people felt in New York after 9-11. Okay.
1: That's really interesting. And I haven't actually ever asked anyone this question before. So, so how did like the experience of 9-11 affect the music scene? in new york
0: so i mean new york had a really incredible music scene up until 9 11 and then overnight all the venues shut down it just felt like music literally died in new york like in an instant (laughs) and then what was happening in new york music
1: after that just felt so terrible let me just stop you there why did why did the venue shut
0: i mean a significant portion of lower manhattan was was inaccessible for months after the yeah. attack and 9-11 also triggered a pretty terrible recession so a lot of people suddenly found themselves without jobs uh, people weren't going out spending money as much so a lot of venues just became sort of unsustainable around that time that recession is kind of like an under the radar one like a lot of people who weren't in new york at the time I think don't have as much a sense of like <laughs> like how that was, but it it really sucked, especially as someone who's, you know, in their early twenties, um, you know, just getting started in their career and whatnot. Like it was a tough time because a lot of companies uh were shutting down. It was also the the sort of dot com boom, right? So suddenly a lot of these burgeoning tech companies that had been doing really well Almost overnight, started struggling and, and closing down. So there was a real consolidation there as well.
1: Yeah, I absolutely remember that because I graduated that summer, so I came out of university looking for a job in July, August, two thousand and one, and then and then yeah, there was just this, this, this huge crash, and then nine eleven on top of that crash, right? So yeah, I can actually completely understand it now. You put it in those terms, so. I interrupted you originally when you were giving your, giving your answer. Was, well, yeah, um, what I was
0: going to say is going back to like what was happening in in music in New York after that period or, or immediately after nine eleven. the music that so Williamsburg was becoming this kind of hip place like that was the sort of you know, the era of the Williamsburg hipster you know, and the, the sort of indie rock scene associated with, with Brooklyn um, and you know, to me these bands that that were big at the time, like the Strokes or the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Like, I just hated it. Like, to me, it was just so back backward-looking in an uninteresting way. There was also kind of in parallel with the indie rock bands this scene that they called Electro Clash. Or is that what it was called? Electro Clash? Yeah, absolutely was,
1: yep. Yep, certainly was. Also
0: very terrible, kind of like, you know, the influence of sort of 80s pop mixed with very shallow sort of like dance music influences.
1: Yeah, Fisher Spooner and all that. All that. And also,
0: uh, what was James Murphy's label?
1: Uh, D F D. Oh God, DFA? Yes, DFA? the DFA. I mean, to
0: this day, I still despise like most of the, the music. It felt like house music and dance music for people who would never go to a real club. You know, that was kind of, that was the landscape, um, you know, after 9-11 for quite a while. And To me, that made me want even more to play some role in bringing music, you know, bringing music to New York that felt like had the danger and the edge and the mystery and the futurism and, you know, all the things that I liked about, you know, hip hop originally. And then as I got into jungle and and, you know, and and techno and all of that, like to me, New York was just missing that. And so um, in the years, in the year or so, like leading up to starting Dub War, I really felt myself like wanting to play a role in bringing something interesting to New York because everything I saw around me felt so boring.
1: So just go back to dubplate.net, which we have discussed on the show before, but just to recap was a forum which was run by the Ammunition Group who were basically a bunch of record labels. It was run by two people. And they were releasing a lot of good music, but they had this forum which involved one of the features of which was them posting. It was was it clips of tunes? Am I right in thinking that, or was it full tracks? Do you remember? I can't remember. It was the was it like two minutes of each track, or was it actually the full track that got posted?
0: You know, I don't remember. I remember it was like really shitty, like like Windows Media Player clips of
1: tracks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah it was like some extraordinarily low res mp3 streaming but you could submit your music and if it was good they would put it up there i remember i had a tune put up there way before i had my first release but it was also like a forum like a message board so my question was going to be like what we had nicole from uh, from Denver God i blanked on the (laughs) on the name of the city of Denver there when we had Nicole Cacciavillano from Denver on the show she named you Drew from LA Miro from Surefire and Suraj from Houston as well as herself as the sort of important well the people who became the important promoters in the kind of early dubstep sound scene in America so Was Dubstep.net like significant at all in linking you guys up? To what extent was it important in sort of like connecting people who were interested in this stuff in the States?
0: Um, Well, Dubplate.net, I believe, is where Joe and I originally connected. But in terms of um, for me personally connecting, you know, directly with some of the the people in the UK making the tunes, um, it was actually Georgina Cook's blog, Drums of the South, so I was a writer, you know, I used to write, um, like, music reviews and stuff, also for my my university newspaper, uh, my college newspaper. So I found myself wanting to write about what was happening in London, and so I convinced Georgina, who maybe I met through dubplate.net, I convinced Georgina to let me write a piece and do an interview with Code 9 for Drums of the South. So Code 9 was the first person in the scene who I... Really, kind of knew personally, and so he eventually was the first person who I reached out to back in December of two thousand and five. I guess it would have been um, to come and play in New York. Like basically, um, on my dime, like I'll fly you over, put you up at my 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 flat for a week or whatever, hang out in New York, and you know, I'm going to organize an event.
1: Okay, but that wasn't the first uh, War Night, was it? I'm pretty sure in saying.
0: Well, the first official dub war oh no sorry the first official dub war happened in brooklyn at a place called bar sputnik i believe it was june of 2005 and we we did two of them there that summer that was just myself and joe and um uh some of his baltimore dj friends playing john ask and a guy named dan g Uh, We played at this place called Bar Sputnik in in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. It was great, but it was small, 30, 40 people, something like that. Um, And, yeah, around the same time, eventually what led to building to the point where we could do it at a bigger venue and and bring Code 9 over was that I was regularly playing the second room of a drum and bass night in Lower Manhattan uh, called Direct Drive. And the promoter of that, a guy named DJ Soul Cliff, he basically was just booking me to to play the whole night in the second room downstairs so i was just playing dubstep records for people that come to these drum and bass parties and eventually um, cliff hooked me up with you know the opportunity to do a bigger night in the main room at that venue and that became the sort of first you know the first dub war featuring a, a uk headliner which was code 9 in december of 2005
1: okay so let's let's go back a little bit here you were drawn into the music like you mentioned through i mean through the internet but you were also buying records i believe from big apple uh, as well right so tell me a little bit about how well the kind of journey up to wanting to put on a dubstep party like what, what was the progression there from hearing these tunes for the first time and then building up over like what was like two or three years actually
0: well, yeah, the, I mean, the process of, like, actually getting my hands on the white labels um, started quite a bit earlier. Um, it might have been 2002 or three. I went to London, um, and I went to Black Market Records. At that time, I was already really, really into LB and Ghost Records, and I think maybe the, the earliest Horsepower ones were just coming out. But I remember going to yep. Black Market... Um, and getting there and discovering that Jada Flex actually worked behind the counter, I already knew of him and his association with Ghost Tracks. And so I basically said to him, like, look, I love this dark two-step kind of sound. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that much about it. Like, can you just like load me up with whatever you can? And I went home with, you know, maybe 50 records all kind of like early, what you would call proto-dubstep at the time, you know, the sort of dark two-step kind of stuff. A lot of Stuff affiliated with Ghost Records and a lot of smaller smaller labels that kind of came and went, but yeah, from that point I had a base of of vinyl that was like all this really cool music that you know in many cases wasn't even really out yet. A lot of it was just white labels, and you know from there forward it was like you said buying a lot of records from Big Apple, which and I and I think they probably started selling online around 2002 2003. So the the dubstep collection built up to a pretty strong place in a a pretty short amount of time because I was so obsessed with it. I was just spending all of my money on, on buying vinyl.
1: Yeah. In in the days when that's what people did. So, okay. So when, when you reached the point that you wanted to put on a party, like what was the, I mean, what was the level of ambition there? I mean, you've already mentioned that it was really small, but was it just a case of, we want to have a place to hear these records on a big system? Or was there anything sort of bigger in the back of your mind? No,
0: there was actually no ambition at all other than, you know, like it's New York, like there's, (laughs) it's a competitive place. I feel like no one is doing anything I'm excited about. Like, I want to do it. I want to like, you know, play, create a venue for people to hear interesting music in New York. And. You know in my own way try and like put my stamp on on the underground of what was happening in, in New York City at the time I'd never at any point really thought like oh this is gonna be the upset's gonna blow or it's gonna be big or um, I mean I think it was only really maybe when I first I think it was scream to be honest who's the first person who I ever said like this guy's gonna be a star <laughs> <laughs> but even even in my own head at the time, my version of what being a star was in the context of this thing <laughs> was still pretty small compared to what it eventually became. And also, to be honest, like it was only when dubstep started to become a bigger thing and become more of an industry and and blow up in in different ways in the states, like that was actually the point where I started feeling uncomfortable and sort of wanting to get out.
1: Okay, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves because there is definitely a slightly depressing aspect to this story, so which we won't get into yet. But um, I mean, you know saying you wanted to make a, you know, make your mark. I mean, that does imply a certain level of ambition. I have to say, like, that's definitely more than you know just wanting to play tunes for your friends. Is that is that fair?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, all right. Okay, so you mentioned Joe, and that's Joe Nice, who has been on the show too. What was the kind of division of labor with? With dub war so i mean i i understood that you, like, you were the sort of like the the sort of i don't know if i don't know if this is correct but like the main sort of promoter and joe was the sort of reign resident dj is that is that is that right or have i got that wrong
0: that's pretty much right i mean joe and i were are were and still are very close friends so i mean we we would talk all the time but you know in general i because i was in new york and he was in baltimore I dealt with the venues and, and most of the promotion, although Joe played his part as well in terms of, like, getting the word out, especially online. Um, you know, I, I sort of had the vision for what, you know, who, who we were going to book and the type of party it would be in terms of, like, the mix of, of sounds and it not being sort of too strictly confined to just dubstep or just a specific sort of type of dubstep. So I was the main guy when it term in terms of who we booked, Um, and then Joe Mm. Joe was the main resident for sure. I played as well, and Alex inside, but you know Joe people came to hear Joe. It was sort of a I mean it was a sight to behold Joe behind the decks at at the War on on that sound system, always holding down the the late night slot. It it was amazing, but yeah, I mean I think the way you described it is pretty accurate.
1: Okay, and the the first big party or the first party in which that you felt was a a, a big event with Code Nine at the end of two thousand and five, and like how did that party go? Like how many people turned up, and you know what was the general vibe like?
0: I think around three hundred maybe showed up three hundred three hundred and fifty. No, I mean it was beyond my wildest wildest expectations, honestly. And not only the number of people, but the energy in the room was crazy electric, like. Everyone in there felt like they were witnessing something special and could not have been more excited and passionate. And I was really proud too that like the event brought out the real music heads in New York. You know, like all the people who were there were like, you know, they weren't there to be at the club or to, to meet girls. Like everyone was really into music and really excited about what was happening
1: yeah I mean that was going to be my question like who were those people?
0: So I mean part of the reason why you know it made me so proud is that there is this vibrant underground music scene in New York like I said before 9-11 and you know the people who made up that scene were they might be doing different things like sort of experimental hip hop or dub or noise music or drill and bass or whatever it might be but like it was just a really tight knit community of creative people and creative thinkers and and I was really proud that the crowd I saw at Dub War were like the music heads I remembered from New York before everything went south after 9-11. So, so it really did feel like, okay, like there's an opportunity to to bring some of that feeling back to what's happening in, in New York underground music.
1: And I mean, this is probably going to be a difficult question to answer just because of how long ago it is, but like, like to what extent do people know the music? Like, was there sort of curiosity because people had an idea that this was a kind of cool thing that was going on and so people were interested? Or was there like how much, how, what sort of percentage of the crowd or, you know, what proportion really knew what they were coming for, do you think?
0: You know, I got the sense that a decent, a decent percentage of the crowd really did know what they were coming for. And, you know, they might have not have been, uh, you know, going through Dubplates on Dubplate.net or, or Big Apple to the extent that I was, but, you know, there were some opportunities to hear some of the better side of what was beginning to happen with dubstep. Um, There were the reflex grind compilations and, and other things like that where, you know, some of the music was getting exposure through slightly more established record labels or channels. And so the people who were like, you know, the real underground music heads had ways of kind of knowing a bit about about what was happening in dubstep without being as sort of like deep in it as i was
1: yeah yeah okay so okay december 2005 is four months before the event which joe in my episode with him like pinpointed as the kind of key turning point in the development of dubstep which was the dmz second birthday uh i think it was the second birthday was it the first birthday God, I always, I, always, I always get this wrong. I think I think it was the first birthday, actually. <laughs> and the infamous event of um, having to move upstairs at, at the Brixton Mass. And that had followed hot on the heels of the Marianne Hobbs Dubstep Wars show. So you guys were kind of in the right place at the right time, I guess. I mean, with the caveat that what I just described was very much a UK thing. So... Like how much of that sort of like frenzy, which followed in the UK at least, did you guys pick up on with the with the subsequent nights? So tell me a little bit about how the party developed, maybe over the subsequent like year or so.
0: Well, I mean, the frenzy certainly did pick up, but I I can't say whether it was related at all to you know coverage, media exposure, anything else in London. I don't know how much people in the States would have known um, you know, what was happening around that time yeah. of the DMZ birthday. But I do know that a similar energy was happening at our things as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was there for that first birthday. I think it was March of 2006. And yeah, it was, it was absolutely incredible. All I can say is like maybe on a slightly smaller scale, what I saw happening in New York at Dub War felt very similar to what I saw every time i went to dmz and that's another thing i was really proud of because dmz was the model for war like my aspiration was to do a a slightly new york twist on what i saw happening at dmz
1: okay and before you mentioned you know, your approach to the bookings which was to not be too fixed on any particular like Part of the music, and you know, one of the key features of early dubstep was the fact that it was really quite broad in the kind of different styles within the style, and that's what really attracted me to it in the first place, and what I found really exciting about it. And like, like I said, like you, you, you mentioned that that was a key part of the, of the booking. So, who were you bringing over in that 2006 period? In for the I mean, actually, before you answer that, how how often were you doing the party in 2006?
0: I was doing it so up until we moved to love in 2007 it was happening maybe every two months sometimes every three months Mm. yeah and and the bookings for the first year like from when code nine came and then for probably about you know a year from there were kind of like from my point of view the the sort of heroes legends of what what they were building in london you know and so a lot of the people who were the, the regulars at DMZ were the bookings in the first year. It was Code Nine, then it was Mala, then it was Lofa and Pokes, um, then it was Scream, <laughs> then it was, and, and I believe you played in that in 2006 as well on the bill with, it was like a forward collaboration. So it had Youngsta, Hatcha, and
1: yourself playing. That's really that's really caught me caught me off guard. Is that, did that really happen? I mean, I th- maybe it did. But okay, so obviously I was going to refer to the substance thing that we did, which obviously includes the uh, the famous MC appearance, which we will talk about. But um, I, yeah, I sort of remember playing with Hatcher and youngster as well. God, my my, my brain is <laughs> it's uh, addled by years of touring, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: you you were there early on, and I know that that it also wasn't your first time playing in New York. If I'm not mistaken, you had played a booking for Seckle earlier that year. Um, But yeah, and I also remember the way that you ended up on that bill. It sort of was a sort of a last minute chance that you were sort of passing through or playing a gig somewhere else in in the States around that time. So,
1: yeah, I do remember this now. Yeah. Wow. that that was definitely like lost in the mists right so okay So, sorry to carry on I, I interrupted you the period before the move to love basically
0: yeah and there were a couple of different venues we moved around um, not intentionally it just seemed like every time we were starting to build momentum a place would get shut down by the police um, because this was also the height of you know Rudy Giuliani as mayor cracking down on, on clubs so so the place um, what was it called now I can't remember where Code 9 first played it was called Rothko that was in the Lower East Side. They got shut down the day before Lofa was going to play there. And, you know, again, through the help of, of DJ Soul, he was able to get us in at the chapel at the Limelight, which is a very, very legendary and iconic room. The Limelight was, you know, one of the biggest clubs in New York at the time. And the chapel was... The yeah, sort of- yeah, we
1: had uh, LeVon Vincent on the show. And he was uh, he was a, sort of one of the, the guys who would play the warm-ups. At Limelight, but but back earlier, so sort of back in the '90s, and that's one club that I really wish I'd got the chance to go to. It was
0: a it was a pretty special place, um, and the the chapel especially was just an amazing room, great sound, and so Loveful and Pokes played there. Cliff was able to hook us up like the day of the party, basically, and it was still really successful. We packed it out, and then we did it there again at the chapel uh, the next month when Scream came to play. That was the Dub War first birthday. Then we moved around a little bit before, um, I think at the end of or no, the beginning of 2007, eventually landing at Love, which was a new a new venue at the time. And that was the point at which it really felt like, oh, we had our sort of permanent home. We, we started doing it monthly and it really hit its stride. And, and that room and that sound system were really like as much um, a factor in, in Dub War's success and, and what it was Uh as as anything else was.
1: Yeah, could you describe the club, actually, for anyone who didn't get the pleasure to go there?
0: Yeah, so Club Love was on Ethan McDougall, right in kind of heart of Greenwich Village in New York, and it was the basement of Electric Ladyland Studios, a very famous recording studio in New York. And I don't know what it had been before, but um, when this guy named Gary... No, not Gary, sorry... Oh, man, I'm forgetting his name. Oh, Steven was his name. Um, you know, he had been a house devotee, like like deep in the New York house music, sort of seen going back to the Paradise Garage days. And he wanted to create a venue that had the feeling uh, of going into the Paradise Garage. So it was a basement. It had a custom sound system built by Gary Stewart, old school, like, rotary mixers and lots of analog equipment. And it had a real cave-like vibe to it and so while he didn't design it and, and, and make it thinking that this would be a place for <laughs> loud bassy uk music it's just and, and to be honest most of the nights at love were house or techno but um yeah i think he was blown away when he saw i mean he was sort of taking a risk on us he didn't really know what we were about what our scene was like so when he saw what happened when we started doing dub war there and the place was absolutely filled with a line around the block and we were really like getting the most out of that sound system and for such a huge passionate crowd like there were no fights and no nonsense like it was a great crowd so it was good for business for them and you know good for the club in terms of being on the sort of on the cultural map in in New York at the time so it ended up being a really amazing partnership
1: yeah i mean what you just said about the crowds there actually really Resonates because that was a real feature of kind of early dubstep scene. Just how, um, just how good the the vibes were on the on the dance floor, but also just in the general community. I mean, in in the conversation that I had with Spoony about Garage, we were talking about. I mean, Garage was just plagued by crowd trouble. You know, there were so many. So many fights, and uh, I mean, I was actually reflecting to when I was listening back to the episode today that you can hear it in the music because you hear in garage tunes, like later stage garage tunes, you hear MCs like in in the lyrics. The MCs were like asking people to behave themselves, so like that was a fairly common lyrical subject in garage tunes <laughs> later, later on because it really got out of hand, right? But but that early dubstep scene was just the complete opposite of that. It was it was so good, and it was seemingly every party any party i went to anywhere around the world just had in that period just had that aspect to the atmosphere
0: yeah it was really powerful and and the the connections that people made through that scene at that time in a lot of cases are are friendships that endure to this day i know for me that's true And, and to me that's a sign of like oh this thing that we were all experiencing together at the time it really was as positive and as powerful as the way we felt it was then
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so you mentioned the the show was scream. What just in in terms of of him generally, and like I think I think you're absolutely right. Like anyone who encounters Ollie uh, will <laughs> realize that he's quite charismatic. But were there, were there like presumably the word, but the what were the important nights? I guess is what I'm asking along the way. Like for example, was there a kind of key turning point in in how it, you felt the night was perceived? In New York.
0: Well, so I mentioned how, like, you know, things really hit hit a stride when we got to love, and that opened up possibilities for me also in thinking of like what I can do, sort of in terms of programming the music because because it being this dark cave like moody kind of vibe and the DJ booth is kind of hidden away, so it's not like you know the DJ is on stage under the lights, and and so I started like programming the the music to be more intentionally diverse (laughs) Um, like I mean the first night at at Love I think Shackleton and Code 9 were on the bill I started you know the Hessel guys came pretty quickly but then I also had uh, you know Caspa and and Scream and people who were playing sort of harder heavier stuff and in the same night you know Distance played um, with Cyrus and you know on the same night you could hear the sort of most aggressive end of the spectrum of dubstep and the most moody the most dubby even the most kind of techno-y side of it and it would all be um over the course of you know several hours of one night you would hear all of it and i really valued the ability to do that and to book from outside of dubstep as well it was important to me to draw a connection to to dub to hip-hop so i had the hank lee uh, hank shock lee do a bomb squad uh, reunion there which is pretty amazing and and even some underground music, uh, underground New York hip hop, was featured at Dub War uh, over the course of those couple of years at Love. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Word Sound Recordings. I brought the the founder okay. and the main producer, who goes by the name of Specter, in to do a set. So yeah, it was a great opportunity. Like I felt like I had a bit of license, you know. Once the point, once it reached a point where. I was confident people were going to show up and they would kind of trust us <laughs> and I didn't have to rely as much on a, on a headliner or a person who just, you know, is, is immediately associated with dubstep once, once that gave me the freedom to kind of like book a broader range of people and sounds like it was, it, love just gave us the, the venue to do it in the best possible way. Cause it just all sounded so great in that sound system and that the energy in that room was, was amazing
1: okay that's really interesting i was not I wasn't aware of that breadth that you had and I certainly wasn't aware of the bomb squad reunion that you'd done and okay so I mentioned the kind of m c incident at the at the substance collab night that we did or you um you put on for us well it was it was double percent substance wasn't it or something something like that I forget exactly how we branded it but we we were certainly your guests um and okay so I have a confession to make here which is that I mean we we described the incident with Joe so what I'm talking about here is Joe the damager turning up and you playing as his DJ for I don't know how long it was half an hour 40 minutes or something or something like that it was something around that and everyone fucking loved it absolutely everyone loved it apart from me I was stood in the back kind of like mmm mmm
0: really this this is this is tell me more
1: (laughs) it was it was it it wasn't just me it wasn't just me either it was me and drew lussman aka faulty dl and we were we were just stood next to each other just like really should it be like this should it be like this
0: i have to tell you paul there's video evidence to the contrary of faulty dl singing along (laughs) to all the tunes
1: (laughs) Well, okay, so he was with—he was next to me for two minutes, and he probably realized the error of his ways and left me on my own. It's probably what happened.
0: <laughs> um, so I was playing my set. I believe I, it was right after you finished your set, and I was only maybe two or three tunes
1: in. I think it was after Apple Bloom because I think part of the reason why I was annoyed is that I realized I was going to have to follow this. Oh. <laughs> so, so. <laughs>
0: Basically, like, I hear someone trying to get my attention. I don't know what's going on. I'm, like, focused. And eventually, I think it was Cliff, DJ Soul, came up to me and said, I've got J.Ru. I just bumped into him outside on the street. <laughs> he was, like, walking home from the movies or something, and Cliff convinced him to come in and check it out. So J.Ru came into the booth, and I just so happened to have a bunch of, uh, of records in my bag, J.Ru records. Um, what was that label called that was like had all the early J.R.U. twelve inches, uh Payday Records, <laughs> and they all have the inch. They all have the instrumentals on the B side. So I was able to basically do a set of all J.R.U. instrumentals with him emceeing, doing the tunes. And it definitely did not go on for a full half an hour. Although like everyone kind of remembers it that way, I think it was maybe four tunes, five. tunes I've heard tunes. it
1: described as ninety minutes, and so it definitely wasn't that long. <laughs> It was probably 15
0: or 20 minutes but 15 or 20 minutes of like one of the greatest MCs like really doing his thing in the most you know the most amazing way like no backing track totally unprepared just stepping up to the mic and absolutely crushing it over instrumentals of his own tunes for a bunch of ravers who came to hear dubstep you know so but I to me it spoke to like the New York thing of like, I don't want this party to be just, you know, trying to recreate something that, that's happening in London, but do it in a New York way. And the fact that everyone in that room understood what was going on and appreciated what it meant that J.Ru was on the mic at Dubwar, like, it just just solidified it for me. Like, oh, we've, we've done this thing in our own way.
1: Well, everyone except, except one person, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hearing you tell this story, I feel like I probably should have appreciated it more.
0: I'm pretty sure there's video online of it and you're definitely in there in the back and like...
1: uh, (laughs) see the look see the expression on my face, right?
0: Speaking of like interesting, unexpected bookings that I I saw as sort of milestones uh, throughout Dub War, one of them was definitely actress um, who, you know, you definitely would not attach to Dubstep even (laughs) like in any way really but... You know, he's he's an example of someone
1: I guess I guess he was part of that sort of like he was sort of part of that post dubstep thing, wasn't he? I guess a bit. Maybe in how he's perceived rather than the actual music.
0: I think yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. But, you know, he came and played that room and he used that sound system like just as powerfully as as any of the dubstep guys, you know, like with really understanding what he could do with the low end in that room and, and it was incredible and I don't think a single person at, at war that night had ever heard of actress before but that definitely stands out to me as one of those sets that just like kind of blew a lot of minds and and got people <laughs> got people's attention.
1: So okay, I've got a question regarding like how you I mean how you ran a night. So you you mentioned that you basically built up a crowd that would come pretty much whoever was playing. So, I mean were you selling tickets or were you just door charge?
0: Yeah, I mean, we were selling tickets and you could just pay at the door. But um, I was never very organized as a promoter. Like I had a pretty demanding full time job and I just, I, you know, the tickets might go on sale a week before, a few days before. And I, to be honest, I was never even that good at being a promoter. In some ways, I kind of like locked into it. <laughs> but yes, right. we were selling tickets. <laughs>
1: I mean, I guess there's a difference between being a promoter and being good at booking DJs, right? Putting together lineups, which is an extremely high value skill, I think. And um, you can get anyone to, uh, you know, to do the admin and that's, that's fine. But, um, okay, so going going back to what I said about, well, what I mentioned about what Nicole said about the, the different important people in various different parts of the US. Like, and Miro, who ran the Surefire Agency, took on a lot of the... For the London dubstep guys early on. So were you, I'm presuming that you were working with him a lot to bring these guys over. Is that correct?
0: Um, that's sort of correct. I mean, the way it really happened was I did, you know, I can't remember if it was after the, the code nine booking or after the Mala booking, I was in San Francisco. Um, I was playing a show out there, I think, and Miro hit me up and we got coffee and you basically said, look, I'm starting this booking agency. I see that you're, you know, bringing these UK DJs over. Like we want to try and bring some dubstep nights to to start, at least in to the West coast and, you know, get them bookings in other places. And, you know, that will help you with sort of flight costs and stuff. So it was kind of like, Hey, when you're, when you're booking someone, someone for dub war, let me know and I'll, I'll try and get them shows elsewhere in the country. And it kind of went from there.
1: Yeah. That, that, that is basically how Nicole described it. So, I mean, were you I guess like the reason that I'm asking this is like like to what extent did you feel maybe not ownership, but like to how much did you feel like you were part of a sort of a developing community of dubstep in the to sort of wider US?
0: I felt it in a huge way. I mean, the 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 collaborations with people like Miro and Nicole and other promoters and other DJs around, around the country was it felt like wow, like we're really building something here, and this is going way beyond what what I imagined it would be when I started this thing, thinking of it, of it as just this sort of esoteric, weird New York music night. Um, and it was great to see that in the same sort of way as like, you know, I had this instant connection with a lot of people in London. Um, it felt that way too with the, the American dubstep heads, as more and more people started to learn about it. And it also felt great having a place that could be sort of an incubator for American producers, like bringing someone like a, you know, Matty G and, and, and Nick Argon and Moldy, like American producers who were making dubstep, like who didn't necessarily have an audience or a following in the States. But when people saw that they were playing a dub war, I think it helped in some ways their, their name get out but also it helped them in sort of crafting their sound because a lot of them really hadn't had opportunities to play their music on a on a sound system like that before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from from the British perspective, it's very easy to see this developing dubstep scene on the other side of the pond as just kind of bringing over the UK guys, but there was a lot more to it too. You're right. I mean, when you mentioned a DJ, but also like, yeah, those those producers who you mentioned, and obviously so many more as well, who really did make some great stuff. And like, I guess where I want to go next is, um, well, okay, let me, let me ask you the question. Like, when do you think the peak was from your perspective of like the good bit? When, when was it most good and most big of the, of the kind of, Dubstep sounds that you are into. Yeah, I
0: mean, most good and most big are, are sort of two different things here.
1: Um, well, what, what, what I mean is like the stuff that you thought was good. When was that most big? Is is kind of what I'm asking.
0: Um, in terms of what was happening at our nights in New York and and also around me in in New York and other places, like for me, the the period that is was the peak would probably probably be from 2007 to 2009 also a couple of names i didn't mention in terms of american producers who you know kind of got their first gigs in a lot of cases at at dub war and that i was proud to to work with like sepulchre is obviously a great example of that um praveen and machine drum um, and faulty dl as well so i think he played his first show ever as faulty dl at dub war so you know these are guys who aren't necessarily strongly associated with the dubstep scene but there was definitely inspiration there for them that you know influenced their sound moving forward
1: well i think you know that just reflects on how wide the early sound was and how kind of inclusive it was but also how inspiring it was you know i mean like you know you said that you wanted to do something different and something creative and like the early dubstep scene absolutely was those two things like that's exactly how i felt about it at the time in london and yeah i mean i think like you know i mean a great example of it is that like and i'm sure this is true for dubstep as well but like so many people say they went to forward who who like who didn't go to forward but but lots of people did go to forward and like you know so many of the like i guess important people in music and like you say not necessarily associated at all with dubstep were interested in that sound because it was so interesting you know and it was so inspiring totally okay well let's go let's go into the depressing bit now then shall we because like the I guess like the story after 2009 is a kind of gradual well I get I think like basically the music gradually got more formulaic and harder uh, sort of broad level and I think as more people got involved with it more there was more of a kind of more parameters were established as to what dubstep was supposed to be basically and i guess to an extent that was inevitable because people like to have a box to put something in people have like to have a label to put on something but i mean when did you start seeing it and when did it well okay so when did it start concerning you i guess is the question
0: um i mean i guess it started concerning me a little bit when like kind of Rus- rusko's fast rise to popularity and I actually don't mean this as anything against Rusko because I liked a lot of tunes that he made especially when he would sort of put on his like steppers hat you know and do the kind of like more reggae inspired stuff like I liked a lot of it Um, but I just think he more than anyone for me in that you know 2008-2009 period seemed to like hit on the Appeal of the like American frat boy audience that eventually led it down the kind of bro step path. I mean, even, yeah. even Skrillex, like, I don't hold it against him personally necessarily. Like, there were plenty of Skrillex tunes that I thought were great and well produced. And I heard him play at like giant festivals and it kind of sounded big and amazing in that context. But for me, yeah. it was just like the people who attached themselves to that sound and started showing up at the party and occupying more and more of the the space on the floor like the people who only wanted to hear that and the way that they behaved and acted and the way they thought about music like is what kind of kind of made it go wrong for me like the thought that anyone would want to hear only that in its most extreme form you know and anything else is shit like that just really bugged me and and also around that time is when suddenly like at the club we'd start to run into instances of like guys like acting inappropriately towards women and more asshole-ish drunk behavior and just with that bro step sound like came a lot of like um you know fans who just were morons in my opinion and and that made it harder to try and like do the kind of night that i wanted to do
1: right so you really noticed it in the audience big time yep
0: and uh, you know i don't know if it was just karma or what but like around that time things started to go a bit wrong at the club too like the sound system started to like be less predictable and less bottom heavy and less powerful. And like the staff also was sort of like there'd be more and more people on staff who weren't kind of our kind of people, just like really nice, awesome people (laughs) who love music, you know? And so it's almost like the, the music, but also all the things around it that like were a part of what made it work so well and feel so positive, like it all started to change together. Um, and also just on, on my end as someone who's a promoter and now suddenly a part of this business that's, that's developing I find myself dealing with more people like promoters and stuff like that uh, you know, who were just not cool like not nice and suddenly started to have to deal with sort of dishonest people and backstabbing and just shady stuff that became part of the business side of it that I didn't really want anything to do with
1: just going back to the crowd thing like were you ever tempted to have a door policy
0: Um, no I mean it it honestly never crossed my mind Um, I always thought of it as a sort of come as you are (laughs) come one and all sort of sort of event and I maybe I was naive but you know I thought at the end of the day the the in a way that's part of the identity of of Dub War and the identity of the scene you know that even in London that like, oh, we're not the the sort of fancy people, the like velvet rope people. We're the people who like don't spend a ton of money on like bottle service and wear whatever we want and go to kind of grimier places. So <laughs> so the thought of like a door policy seemed to run counter to that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because I, yeah, obviously, as we mentioned that Dubstep, you know, it's a part of a direct lineage of, of UK Garage and, you know, UK Garage actually... In London was was the total opposite. It was like hard door policies. Like you had to wear shoes and a shirt to get into the raves. Like it was, you know, completely different. But it was very much of a. It was it was a very different atmosphere to what I think people understand in in the United States as as kind of bo- as the bottle service thing. It wasn't really that. It was largely kind of working class people, and you know, it was very much a kind of I don't know. It was it was of the of the kind of like lineage of rave but for some reason and i was trying to get to the bottom of this with spoonie and and just really wasn't able to (laughs) as to why this happened with garage but but it yeah it it really uh had that thing but then i guess dubstep despite the fact that it came out but had much more of a kind of drum and bass ethos with the culture i think i think it was that that was much more it was much closer to that in terms of the character of the kind of like the atmosphere and, and what people were trying to bring to the raves Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I I think that's right. But, you know, it was always a mystery to me. Like, oh, how did these kids from Croydon, like, you know, start making Garage, even if they didn't see it as Garage themselves, like they're working in that tempo using some (laughs) similar kind of swung uh, drums and stuff. And um, I, I just I think it just has to do with the fact that, like, that's what was
1: all over pirate radio at the time and so (laughs) that's exactly what i was going to say like i mean garage was just so huge in london like in that sort of 98 99 2000 2001 that sort of period like it was just everywhere and it wasn't just on pirate it was in the charts it was like you know and but but despite the fact that it was commercially successful it never really lost that kind of underground thing so if you're a kid you know if you're if you're scream in 2001 2002 despite the fact that this stuff is in the charts like it's still on pirate it's still a cool thing to be into you know if you're into underground music you know so i guess that's that's the reason
0: and i remember like early on being curious like oh does does lofa you know or (laughs) youngster or scream do they feel like what they're doing is connected and Related to and inspired by Garage, you know, and I think it was Lofa. Maybe you basically told me, like, no, bro, that's not us. Like, (laughs) you know, like we didn't want anything to do with that, you know. So, any connection to Garage, I really think, like you're saying, it's just purely contextual and it has to do with just the ubiquity of that sound in in London street culture at the time.
1: I mean, I think I'm, I'm, well, I'm guessing here, but I I would assume that when when Lofa said that, he was talking about the kind of that culture, that kind of shirt and shoes culture rather than necessarily the music. Because, you know, as you said, there was this very much a kind of like underground dubby element to UK garage, which in fairness, like did develop later on, but you know, stuff like, yeah, like you said, ghost and there were various other things. I mean, even some, even some of the MJ Cole stuff is is really kind of like no dark, but that's, that's the difference, right? I don't know if I totally
0: agree with that because I I think also from a, production point of view and you know i'm just speaking about a uh, conversation i remember with lofa but i'm kind of extrapolating from that like i think the sort of shiny twinkly <laughs> sort of sparkly qualities of of a lot of garage production and even like you know sort of the the emphasis on hi hats and the drums and the, the high end like it lacked that dusty grimy like sort of dub aesthetic you know the sound of a dusty dub plate and the kind of reggae influence in the sonics and and i think that you know they were also pushing back against that against the sound of garage
1: yeah yeah i think you're definitely right there and like pointing to dub plates in particular i think is kind of crucial because i mean i've said this on the show before but like you know the the sound of a dub plate and basically hearing those records on dub plate is completely different to like when well there's there's quite a lot of that music which is now available digitally and you put it you put it on a you know put it on stick on spotify or whatever and it does not sound like playing it off a dub plate. it just doesn't at all like half of it is well i mean certainly a, a very big part of the texture and the the kind of i don't know like the vibe of it almost is isn't there right i mean have you experienced that yourself
0: 100 percent, 100 percent. i mean the, there's definitely something going on in low frequencies with dub plate <laughs> that is an added little special magic uh, that's hard to explain.
1: It's also that you have a sizzle, right? Like the the kind of cra- crackly nature, you know?
0: Yeah, that, and and also it feels to me with dub plates sometimes like there's almost like a bit of a low pass filter, like you're just not getting the sparkly
1: highs quite as much, especially after you play them a few times. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. Where do we get to? We were talking about uh, brostep. Mm. Okay. We, <laughs> we need to. We need to see this to its conclusion. Unfortunately. Um, so okay. So 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 two thousand seven, two thousand nine for you is the kind of golden period, and double finished in two
0: thousand and ten. Yep. The the last event was the fifth birthday party in two
1: thousand and ten. Okay. So tell me about why you why it finished what was the process and what was the decision
0: uh i mean it was sort of all the things that i mentioned before in terms of the the crowd starting to change the venue starting to change the the scene and the business around it all starting to change and like i had a stressful enough life at, as it was like with my career and it just made it hard to put in because doing the was like having another full-time job in a way and it just made it hard to like Put in all of the extra time and energy and effort. At the end of the day, to into something that was just like not making me as happy. Um, and so I just and don't get me wrong, there was like still a lot to do in terms of like where the music was heading. And I, I feel like a person like me, as a sort of curator of of the music, there was still a role to play in doing kind of what Dub War was doing and the sounds it was bringing together. I just didn't have it in me in a way to kind of like rebuild like start to it start a new venue just it was just too much <laughs> it was starting to make me a little sad and it just felt like that five-year mark like right on the birthday just felt like the right time to to stop we were still kind of going out on a high it was still very popular at that time it's not like the the crowd started you know um diminishing in any way it just I just saw like, oh, the next year for me of doing this is going to be a struggle and I just don't know that I have it in me right now. So so I just felt like it was the right time to call it.
1: Yeah, that's the same with us and Substance, actually. We, we finished on the fifth birthday for similar reasons, really. Um, it just felt like it, it wasn't what it once was musically. And it's, I mean, when you when you experience that, when you basically, when you've had a really high high with someone like that, And then you kind of have this gradual sort of dissipation of it. Then, I mean, I found it in my experience with that, like pretty depressing, pretty soul destroying actually. And then, you know, and then I I guess setting an end date on it gives you something to say, hey, we're going to go out on something. It's going to be good. And then it's going to be, we're going to draw a line under this and it's going to be done. And that will have been a good period rather than just kind of letting it fade out.
0: Yeah, I think so. And, And I was always looking for clues like, oh, did I make the wrong decision? And, if I go to other nights, like other dubstep nights popping up, or I see what's happening in other places around the country, like, is it making me rethink whether like, you know, like are other people kind of like keeping hope alive and doing it the right way and the the crowds and the scenes and everything. And like what I saw happening around that time was like a a lot, the decline I felt I saw happening elsewhere as well. And I didn't really see people who I felt like, Oh yeah, they're, they're really doing it right. And like, I like, I could do it if I if I put the energy into it. It just, I don't know, it felt to me like like the right time to take a pause and reassess what the landscape is and what's happening musically. And for me, that period, like 2010, and the years immediately after that, at least in terms of dubstep, were just, like, not a very inspiring time.
1: <laughs> right, to say the least. Tell me a little bit about how the scene, like the bass music scene, in new york had developed like over that period that you would you had been putting on the night over those five years because there were some definitely some other things going on as well and i guess there was uh there must have been a like a big boom of other dubstep nights which gradually grew up so tell me about that a little
0: bit yeah i mean so there were other dubstep parties that came up sort of in the aftermath of dub war the biggest one in new york was definitely called reconstruct and um like I, I really respected what they were doing. Um, I mean, they did it in good venues, and the the thing that was nicest about it um, for me was actually less about the music and more about the fact that like, oh, suddenly there are all these kids who were maybe too young to go to Dub War, or just for one reason or another, sort of knew about it and cared about it, but just hadn't been there. And suddenly there's a venue for them to go where they feel like they're a part of that same sort of lineage uh, of what Dub War had had built. So I thought that was really nice. Um, but for me that was a point where musically you kind of had to make a choice like bro step or deep, you know, <laughs> like, it's like, those are the only choices, right? Right. The construct all about the kind of deep meddy sound, uh, for several years, um, in the beginning there, which I love that sound. I just, for me, the music I was most excited about at that time was actually what was happening in Chicago with footwork. And some of the the nights that were happening in New York and the intersection of footwork and the sort of queer underground in New York, like there's just a lot of exciting things happening that were, that for me were musically unfamiliar. And so to me, that's where the cultural energy was and excitement um, in, in those years, like 2010 up through like, I don't know, up to through like 2015, probably.
1: Yeah. Footwork is something that I haven't really discussed on the show at all. And my knowledge of it is fairly rudimentary. So tell me a little bit about your getting interested in that because, I mean, there was a little bit of a kind of crossover with dubstep people. I mean, like, obviously, Addison Groove did his thing, which was um, a sort of post-step, notionally post dubstep e kind of project, but very, very influenced by Footwork. And then, obviously, on Hyperdub, they did a fair bit, which was directly in that whole thing. So tell me a little bit about your interest in that.
0: Yeah. So I was, um, I I booked DJ Rashad to play in New York in 2010. What I did was I I moved to different flat in Brooklyn and there was a small club, like across the street again, like in a basement. (laughs) So I started this small night called twist up and it was all about sort of bringing in a bit of footwork, a bit of jungle, a bit of dubstep and a bit of who knows whatever else. And um, so I booked Rashad, and at the time he was kind of semi-living in New York um, and linking up with this guy Jamie who ran a a club night called Lit City. And Lit City, for me, was like the most exciting party in town at the time. And so I just started, you know, occasionally playing at Lit City and getting getting to know Rashad and Spin and, and Earl and a lot of those Chicago guys pretty early on. And they were just always around in New York, so... It was like there was this new little scene, this little subculture starting to build with, with footwork, a key part of it, but also the kind of sort of vogue resurgence that was happening and some of the more like interesting, like underground queer club music at the time. Um, and so, yeah, sorry, I can't even totally remember the question, but like in terms of the thing I was doing with Twist Up, and I, I was still getting bookings and DJing a lot. I became really fascinated with finding this interesting intersection between footwork and a bit of jungle and drum and bass. And what at the time was this sort of emerging sort of half, half step sound in drum and bass, right. uh, again, coming from the UK. And so <laughs> drum and bass, which had also gone down the route of just becoming really bro for a while. Suddenly, to me, there was this refreshing take on it that's inspired a bit by dubstep and being more sparse and more slow feeling. And, and so... I started playing a bit more of that sound in my sets and mixing it with, you know, jungle and footwork and, and other things and started getting bookings at, at events in New York that were starting to experiment with mixing these kinds of sounds together.
1: Okay. So we haven't actually talked about your DJing at all really. And I've actually, when I was preparing for this, noticed a fair few photos of you play on some fairly big stages. So, I mean, what was the nature of your DJing career in this period because I mean like by the sound of things you were playing out quite a lot outside of your own parties and you know playing some some pretty big shows
0: yeah I mean similar to how I became a promoter I kind of in a way was an accidental DJ (laughs) it was never an like I loved music I had I think an interesting take uh, an interesting taste in music and I had the opportunity to play things for people that were new and exciting to them and so I took that opportunity whenever it arose But I never really put that much energy into, like, I want to be a DJ. I want to, like, you know, find a way to get as many bookings as possible, make money, be the best, most amazing sort of technical mixer. Like, for me, it was always, like, I have records. I can more or less mix. Like, if people want me to play, I'm happy to go. But I never sort of sought it out. If people came to me and asked me, I played, and it you know it just so happened that sometimes they were bigger things and a lot of times it was based on the sort of reputation you know from dub war like most of the time it was Mm -hmm. but it was nice kind of after i stopped dub war starting to get bookings that weren't within the world of dubstep and and that was kind of cool that i felt like i'd built a little bit of a reputation at least in new york as someone who was doing interesting things that do tap into like dub or jungle or drum and bass and, and obviously dubstep and so yeah, for me it was just an experiment. Like, okay, I'm out there. My name's out there. Who will come? <laughs> and in general, the people who who knew about me and would actually want to book me were the kind of people who I respected what they were about musically. So I just kind of let it happen organically. And you know, as I got a bit older, got married, like now I have a kid. You know, the the bookings are sort of few and far between. A, a couple of year, a couple of year. So I've just sort of like let it go its course in a in an organic way, and I'm not trying to force anything.
1: Right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, c- give me a couple of key shows outside of uh, Dub War that you look back upon fondly.
0: I played DMZ like three times, I think. So I mean, that's definitely the gig I'm most proud of. And you know, um, of those three, two of them went really well. <laughs> 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 um. I mean, I, I'm really proud of the shows I played in Cape Town. Um, I met my wife there. Actually, at a, I was doing a booking there in Cape Town, and it was an amazing party and amazing music culture and just creative culture in Cape Town, South Africa. And so I had multiple opportunities to play some different events there that were all amazing. Weirdly, like, I played... Oh God, where was it? I don't know. There's some very random weird European <laughs> gigs, like, in in uh portugal and finland and stuff but yeah i mean dmz for me will probably always be the pinnacle
1: okay and then give me a few like dub war highlights apart from apart from (laughs) jeru um like djing highlights moments that you remember that were that stand out
0: god there was a ramadan man tune so i mean i was cutting dub plates um for most of the the dub war run and um Oh my god, I can (laughs) It's that Ramadan man that goes I just remember playing that for the first time and it it was the first time I felt like oh, I'm actually putting these people in a trance right now (laughs) I just remember like the whole energy of the room changing this way where like it's like people were still totally engaged but kind of like quiet and just staring (laughs) like in a good way (laughs) So that one definitely stands out and and because I had this kind of early friendship with, you know, Lofa and Mala, I was like, in Scream, I was fortunate enough to like have quite a few of their sort of most epic, iconic tunes on dub plate, like quite a while before they eventually saw a release. So that very earliest stage of Dub War, um, playing some of those DMZ dub plates for people was pretty incredible as well, because it's almost like people sort of immediately knew what was happening, like before the tune even dropped. So that was cool
1: yeah okay cool so okay just taking it up to now like what's your perception of i guess what we've been talking about is like the part of the kind of lineage of, of bass music going from you know jungle and garage and then through dubstep and then you know going to talk about footwork and various different iterations that have kind of happened sort of since then like how closely do you follow it now generally
0: i don't follow Really closely, but closely enough. I mean, because of the relationships I've formed with people over the years, I still get sent a a lot of tunes. Um, I'm on this like email list with like a lot of my heroes of more recent years, (laughs) and the tunes that get sent to that email list are, you know, to me, really mind blowing. And so, a lot of the music at least when I think of music through the lens of like DJing and clubbing, um, a lot of the music that has been most exciting to me has been at least peripherally um, uh, related to drum and bass in, in recent years. But like I was saying, a lot of it is that kind of half-steppy sort of sound. And and it does use a lot of the sort of sonic influence of, of dubstep. But um, yeah, for me <coughs> in the last few years, that's been the stuff that I've been most passionate about.
1: So which... um. Which producers stick out to you?
0: I mean, Alex Perez. Um, a lot of what's been happening mm. on his on his label. Um, a lot of what D Bridge is putting out on his label. Oh man, what are those dudes called? Um, the ones who are like more kind of more of a hip hop kind of sound, but still sort of in that scene. And they're quite big in the festival circuit. What the fuck is their name? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I mean, and even still, a lot of what Machine Drum's doing, I'm, I, I really love. But yeah, this kind of intersection yeah. of, of hip hop, drum and bass and dubstep, for me is still the, the fertile territory that, that I'm excited by.
1: Yeah, I mean I was I just loved the whole autonomic thing. I just thought it was great and and it's still super influential, I think, in that kind of stuff that you're talking about. It's it's
0: literally going to drive me crazy right now that like the music I've spent the most time listening to in the last like in the last year I can't even remember. <laughs>
1: Okay. Well, listen, man, this has been great. Thanks so much for doing it. I really appreciate it, Paul. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, that was Dave Q. Really enjoyable conversation from my perspective. Like I said at the top, Dave and I go back a long way. We've hung out a fair bit over the years, but I haven't seen him for ages and ages. So it's great to be able to catch up. But it was also just great to be able to dig into his experiences really you know, I said in the intro that his story is really important in the development of kind of bass music generally in the United States and North America, but I think specifically, obviously, dubstep. But I think, you know, the influence of that early dubstep stuff is just huge now across popular music generally, actually. I think it's fair to say. So it's really, really significant what they achieved with Dub War. And this is a story which more people should know, really. So I hope we've contributed towards that dissemination in a small way on this episode. So if you enjoyed this episode, then you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's two tiers up there. The first of which is a basic thing. It's like, I don't know, four, I think it's four bucks a month, US dollars. And, um, Yeah, you get bonus podcasts as a result of that. It's not just supporting the show. You do get more content and stuff goes up every week there. Some amusing stuff, I think it's fair to say. Some extra info stuff. Usually an extra podcast a week, either a mixed show or uh, sometimes me just chatting. For example, I do reviews of various Spotify top tens, popularity top tens. So for example, I did the other week the top 10 in Slovakia. And that was interesting to say the least. Yeah, there's loads of bonus content on that. And then there's a musicality tier, which is a little bit more expensive, which basically gets you on the Hot Flush promo list. And in addition to Hot Flush promos, there's just music that goes up there. You know, high quality download stuff. So if you're a DJ, you know, there's there's fairly regular stream of music, new and classic music that goes up there. So that's a good way to support us too. So like I said, if you're getting anything out of what we're doing here and want to support us, then obviously that is the best way. However, if you can't do that or if you don't want to do that, it's also cool. Hit the five star button of the review function of whatever app you're listening to this podcast on. That really does help us, genuinely does. So do that. Follow the Spotify playlist. There is a link in the show notes to that playlist. Contains all the episodes plus most of the music that we talk about on the show. So lots of dubstep this week as I mentioned at the top. And if you've got anything to say to me or anything to say to anyone who works on the show, anything you want to say to any listeners of the show, then the Discord server is open. hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. Join up in there. If you are a patron, if you want to join Patreon, then you do get access to a private area of that Discord server. I should emphasize so that's another bonus to being a Patreon subscriber, supporter, whatever. Okay. I'm really tired as I mentioned at the top of the show it was good that I didn't have to do that interview with Dave in this kind of a state I actually don't know how I'm managing to do this link in this kind of a state but we're done for this week maybe see you at ADE next week if not then well I'll see you on the podcast or well, you'll hear me rather on the podcast well definitely time to stop this Thanks for listening. I'll check you same time, same place next week on the next episode of a Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you.
0: to